Welcome to the bonus holiday edition of For the Defense. I'm your host, David Oscar Marcus. I hope everyone has a healthy holiday season. And back to the podcast in the first season, we covered lots of blue collar crimes, murder, sex offenses, uh, even a drug offense in federal court. This episode deals with a white collar crime. There's no violence, there's no drugs, there's no sex. White collar crime generally deals with fraud, businessmen, professionals, corruption, like public corruption. And this is really my specialty. I handle lots of white collar cases and I currently teach white collar uh, crime at the University of Miami and previously taught it at FIU. This episode was actually recorded during my class this past semester where we had Hank Asbill as a guest. And we're gonna speak to Hank about his representation of the governor of Virginia, Robert McDonnell. And back in 2014, Governor McDonnell and his wife were charged with corruption charges for receiving all kinds of gifts from a Virginia businessman named Johnny Williams. Now, white collar crime isn't like a bank robbery, for example. Everyone knows that robbing a bank is criminal. So at a trial for bank robbery, the defense is generally sody. Some other dude did it. That's not true in a white collar case. In white collar cases, many times, the defendant will agree that he did the actual act, in this case, receiving the gifts. But the defense will be either, one, that's not a crime, or two, I didn't think what I was doing was a crime or criminal or bad. That latter defense focuses on the intent of the person. And you'll hear from Hank uh, now about his defense of Governor McDonnell. And he'll say and explain that, yes, McDonnell and his wife got lots of gifts, money and other items. But the question at trial and all the way to the Supreme Court, you'll hear, is whether he did an official act in exchange for those gifts. Did he do anything in exchange? The pro quo in the quid pro quo. Certainly there was a lot of quid, as you'll hear Hank say, but was there anything in return? Johnny Williams testified for the government that there was, um, but Hank and company argue against it, go all the way to the Supreme Court, and you'll hear what happens next in For the Defense. So Hank, let me introduce you to the students. Um, This is Hank Asbel on the on the Zoom call with us, everybody. Hank is like the man to see in the white collar criminal law world. And he's an awesome lawyer. He's been saying basically, fuck you to the government for how many years, Hank? Uh, 40 something. Yeah. Um, I've only been doing it for 20 something. So you've got a lot more fuck yous in you than I have. (laughs) And I started out telling the class that I was gonna be formal with you. and, And this is how we've started out. Um, Hank had the really cool experience of representing the governor of Virginia, Robert McDonald. And I'd like to speak with you today, Hank, about that representation, how you came into the case all the way through trial up to the Supreme Court. So why don't we just start at the beginning? I mean, you don't get the first call when the indictment's handed down. You represented the governor for a while before indictment. How did you get in? How did you get involved in the case? Well, yeah, uh, in, in 2013, uh, in 2013, there were starting to be in the around the March timeframe, uh, Easter timeframe. Uh, there started to be a lot of news reports or leaks of a grand jury investigation that were reported by the Washington Post and some of the Richmond uh, papers. 
uh, about a grand jury investigation of Governor McDonald relating to his relationship or supposed relationship with a guy named Johnny Williams, who was the CEO of a publicly traded company called Star Scientific. Uh, and the, the theory in the, in the releases, basically, the grand jury leaks, uh, was that McDonald had somehow been bribed to give official act favors to Williams. Uh, when those reports started to come out and the governor became aware of the grand jury investigation, um, he initially lawyered up. Um, he first, he and his wife were both initially represented by uh, Williams and Conley. Uh, Williams and Conley was not uh, uh, interested in interacting much with the government. Uh, it's just not their style. Uh, and as a result of that, the governor brought in uh, an old friend of his name, uh, <laughs> excuse me, John Brownlee, who had been the U.S. Attorney for the Western District of Virginia. And when McDonald was running for governor, Brownlee was simultaneously running on the Republican ticket for Attorney General. Uh, so the governor had brought uh, Brownlee and Holland and Knight in. Uh, so the governor reached out to friends at Notre Dame, uh, where Bob had gone to school, uh, was on the board, et cetera, and close friends with a lot of the top administrators of Notre Dame. Uh, and asked them for recommendations for uh, additional counsel or lead counsel. Uh, there's a very strong connection between Jones Day, where I was a partner at the time, and Notre Dame. And the uh, so anyway, that connection to Jones Day uh, was discussed, uh, and that's how I got into the case. We'll, uh, we'll forgive you for the uh, for the connections to Notre Dame, since we're all Miami people here. Yeah. Well, I didn't, have, I didn't have any personal connections to Notre Dame, but in any event, the chairman of our firm did. Uh, and uh, the people at Notre Dame asked him or asked Jones Day to come in and help McDonald out or help figure out what was going on. And uh, in that vein, I got asked by the chairman of the firm and by McDonald to take control of the case. So, Hank, when you come into a case like that, I mean, there's so many things to get your arms around. One is when you represent a high profile client like the governor, that's difficult in itself. And then a high profile prosecution, a lot of times prosecutors won't even speak to defense lawyers in that situation. Were they, were they willing to talk to you and tell you what they were looking at or did they say, see in court? No, they were willing to talk to us. They gave us a, uh, a reverse proffer to try to convince us uh, that McDonald should cut his losses and take a plea. Uh, that went nowhere, and it went nowhere with his wife uh, and her counsel as well. Uh, but they were willing to talk to us about it, and ultimately we got an audience. Uh, we insisted on an audience with the uh, Deputy Attorney General, uh, Jim Cole, uh, and with the head of the Public Integrity Section uh, and other lawyers associated with the case. And ultimately, uh, prior to the indictment, we got an audience at Maine Justice uh, in December of 2012, uh, right before McDonald was indicted the, uh, in January of the following year, uh, that exercise went nowhere either. Uh, we tried to convince the people at Maine Justice and, uh, and the locals uh, that they didn't have a case based on agreed upon facts, uh, that they misunderstood the law in terms of what an official act was and their theories were wrong uh, about legally what constituted an official act. Uh, and we basically told them that, uh, you know, no matter what happens, if you indict, if we go to trial, if we lose, uh, if we lose in the Fourth Circuit, uh, the Supreme Court is going to take the case and you're going to lose 9-0 in the Supreme Court. 
Well, you were off by you were off by one. I think it was eight no, zero. I was off by two. If Scalia had lived, it would have been ten zero. So when you meet with DOJ and they're they're making pleas plea offers, what did they offer you? at that point, well, the the actual offer was never was never made public. Uh, there were news reports uh, that were leaked by the government about what the offer was that were wrong, uh, that were not as harsh as what the government uh, uh, wanted him to plead to. But the bottom line was that uh, if he was willing to plead uh, to bank fraud charges, uh, they were willing to drop the public corruption charges that they were intending to, uh, to bring, uh, and they would let his wife go. Uh, and anyway, but uh, they were going to, obviously, in connection with trying to get him sentenced, uh, they were going to outline all the public corruption evidence that they had, uh, regardless of whether the charges were actually brought or he pled them. You know, they, I've seen more and more the government doing this where they, where they say, if you take a plea, we will not prosecute a family member like a wife or a child. Um, what, what do you make of that strategy that DOJ is employing in trying to get people to plead guilty? I, I find it to be tremendously offensive. Uh, I mean, Maureen McDonald was collateral damage in this case. Uh, the only reason that she was charged, there are two reasons. One was to uh, make it more difficult for her to be a witness for her husband. Uh, and she had a lot of exculpatory evidence to provide uh, that if she were not charged, uh, would have been much easier to access. Uh, and they wanted to leverage him uh, and try to you know, play the, you know, you got to be the Virginia gentleman, basically, and you should uh, take a hit here and keep your wife out of the crosshairs. Uh, despite the fact that most of the evidence in the case uh, related directly to the wife's relationship with Johnny Williams. Uh, I found it to be very offensive, uh, very problematic, um, and I, I think it's uh, you know, unconscionable as far as I'm concerned, although obviously uh, Maureen McDonald uh, did have a lot of interaction with Johnny Williams. Uh, I, you could have theoretically charged Maureen McDonald with conspiring with Williams to try to get her husband to perform official acts uh, for Williams, even without charging the governor directly. But they didn't care about Maureen McDonald at all. Uh, and, anyway. and of course, she, she never took an official act anyway. Or she can do whatever she wants. She can stand on the street corner for a million dollars an hour and hawk Johnny Williams products. Uh, she's not a public official and she can do whatever she wants in that regard. So, so maybe this is not a conspiracy with her husband. Right. So maybe this is a strange question, but but if she never spoke about any of this with her husband, um, could she have been found guilty of, of any of the crimes or no? Well, I mean, I, I theoretically, I guess, if she and Johnny Williams conspired to, uh, to, to bribe uh, McDonald to get him to perform official acts, uh, you know, whether, whether, or not, uh, whether or not they ever followed through on it, they would have uh, potentially been able to charge both of them with a conspiracy. Okay. Okay. And so, you know, it is strange though, because in most cases, especially when a family member's charged, there's this, this sort of embracing of each other and, and providing a unified defense. Um, this was the opposite, it seemed like, although um, I, I don't know if you can talk about whether it was a joint defense or not, but at least both sides were shooting arrows at each other um, at the trial. Uh, I don't view it that way at all. I mean, uh, to begin with, in terms of the plea, alleged plea offer uh, that really didn't uh, exist in the form that was reported 
uh, everybody in the family, all the governor's five children and his wife uh, and all the relatives agreed that there would be no plea. Uh, there was no way that uh, Bob was going to admit committing a felony, give up his license, uh, you know, exit uh, the governorship uh, in ignominy. Uh, that was not going to occur, and nobody in the family wanted it to occur. Uh, and in terms of the strategy at the trial, uh, there clearly was a joint defense, and the essence of the joint defense was to tell the truth, basically, about what happened. Uh, what the what the relationships were between uh, husband and wife during this critical time period, uh, and what exactly uh, the governor knew and didn't know uh, relating to Johnny Williams, um, and that was the plan to begin with, uh, and it was agreed upon by counsel for both uh, the governor and his wife. Hank, maybe I jumped the gun. Um, when you speak of reverse proffers, that's when the government tells the defense their theory of the case and why they think they're going to win. What, what was their theory of the case before we get into the weeds of the defense and everything else? What was the government's theory of the case? The government's theory of the case basically was that in return for gifts and loans to McDonald and his family from Williams, uh, the governor agreed uh, to try to uh, <coughs> get the state government uh, to conduct uh, trials, clinical trials at Virginia medical schools uh, for Johnny's product, uh, Anatoblock, which was a nutraceutical uh, that supposedly uh, uh, dealt with inflammation issues. Uh, and Johnny was trying to get that, uh, he claimed he was trying to get that product approved by the FDA uh, so he could make a lot more money. His company could make a lot more money marketing it as an approved drug as opposed to uh, a nutraceutical. So that, that's the government's theory, uh, was that trying to help Johnny get his product uh, FDA and short-term approved by the... Uh, and when... ...effective by the Virginia Medical Schools and clinical trials, that was their theory. And Hank, the, the way he was trying to do that, the government said, was through giving gifts and loans and... And I think they, you know, they, in their opening, they showed the picture of the Ferrari and they certainly leaked that to the press. Um, but all those facts were agreed to by the defense, I assume, right? Yeah. I mean, there were variations on that theme. For example, uh, I mean, there were discrepancies between what Johnny Williams claimed and what the wife claimed and what Bob claimed about the Ferrari, for example. Uh, at one point in time, uh, Williams offered to let uh, to let the McDonald's use his house, his vacation house at Smith Mountain uh, Lake uh, for a you know, three-day vacation. Uh, and uh, as Bob understood it, uh, Johnny had a Ferrari there in the garage that he wanted to have back in Richmond. Uh, and so the message to Bob at the end of the three-day weekend was, would you do me a favor and drive the car back to Richmond for me? And Bob thought that that would be fun to drive the Ferrari a couple hundred miles back to Richmond, and that's what he did. Uh, this was not something that Bob thought of or knew uh, was lined up as some sort of a perk uh, by Williams for Bob in return for you know Bob performing any kind of official act or putting his thumb on the scale of anything that the Virginia government might do or might be able to do. So there are a lot of you know there uh, there are a lot of twists on those things. Uh, that uh, it, it, they didn't come out exactly the way the government thought they were going to come out. Uh, the same was true with other gifts 
Uh, for example, Maureen McDonald got uh, $20,000 worth of dresses, coats, et cetera, from Johnny Williams, uh, which she never told her husband about. She hid in the mansion uh, in an office, basically, told her daughters about it, uh, that she had gotten the stuff from Johnny Williams, but neither the daughters nor Mrs. McDonald ever told Bob anything about the dresses that Johnny had bought from Maureen. So, so I mean, that we agreed on the facts, essentially, in terms of uh, the basic core of the facts, but not about who knew what, when, or who was involved uh, in the issues relating to the gifts and the loans. Is a governor and his wife receiving those gifts a federal crime? We'll find out in For the Defense next. Pictures of Ferraris, wives getting dresses and coats and money. I mean, doesn't look good if you're a governor and that's what's going on. But the question is whether that's a crime, not whether it looks good or bad. And that's part of the problem with criminal defense and the trials these days. In a civil case, there'd be depositions, motions for summary judgment, and the law would get tested. In a criminal case, however, there there are no depositions. There are no motions for summary judgment. It's basically you go to trial or you plead guilty. And that's why so many cases plead guilty because the risks are so high and you don't get to test the law unless you're willing to go to trial, get sentenced and take it up to the Supreme Court. Governor McDonnell had the guts to do that with a great lawyer like Hank Asbill, and you'll see what happens in For the Defense next. But, you know, in a lot of these white collar cases, and this one's no no different, those images, the image of, of your client in a Ferrari or, you know, with just with wealth, prosecutors use that so often, even if there's no bad story around it because the image of wealth itself, they think, is going to have such an impact on the jury. Yeah, particularly for a public official. Right. Uh, to be driving a Ferrari, to get a Rolex, essentially, to have high-end vacations, uh, play golf at exclusive clubs, etc. cetera. Uh, but the real interesting thing with respect to that is that every governor who preceded Bob had taken from various businessmen in Virginia an equivalent amount or nearly equivalent amount of gifts uh, during the course of their tenure as governors. Uh, So this was not unusual. Everybody, you know, the the other governors had all taken gifts from various people, not as concentrated with a single individual donor like Johnny Williams, uh, but the total of around $150,000 was something that was commonplace in Virginia for governors to accept during their four-year terms. So the indictments returned, do they arrest the governor? Do they let him surrender? No, uh, they let him surrender. Uh, but the, uh, uh, you know, the, the issues leading to the indictment were sort of interesting. Um, they didn't want to, the government didn't want to, was afraid to indict uh, McDonald in the fall of 2013 because he was still serving his term as a governor, number one, and there were interim elections uh, in November in Virginia. And DOJ policy is not to bring uh, public corruption indictments on the eve of elections for fear of supposedly influencing those elections one way or another. Uh, so the government was going to hold off until Bob's term expired on the 12th of January, 2013, uh, before they returned an indictment. But we knew after the meeting with Maine Justice at the end of December, 
that they were going to go ahead and indict. We just didn't know exactly when. Um, I told the lead prosecutor that I don't really care when you indict. Uh, you know, we'll show up whenever we're required to show up in court. Uh, but do me one favor, and that's the, to not do anything during this particular five-day stretch in late January around Martin Luther King uh, Day, uh, because my wife and I had planned to go to Petty St. Vincent on a five-day trip for her birthday, which was the 22nd of January. So the prosecutor said, don't worry about it. Uh, you know, I won't do anything while you're gone. Um, and that's exactly what they did. Oh, my God. Uh, I went to uh, I went to pay St. Vincent with a uh, a, uh, a cell phone, uh, my wife's cell phone and a satellite phone uh, to make sure that if anything happened while I was on this brief vacation, that, uh, that I would know about it. And I got a call sitting on the beach in Petty St. Vincent from the lead prosecutor saying that uh, they had just filed the indictment. Uh, and they then uh, dragged their feet on trying to get the court to schedule the initial court appearance. Uh, I asked, you know, this was on a Tuesday when they uh, returned the indictment. Uh, and I said, fine, why don't you have the initial court appearance on the following Monday because I'm scheduled to come back uh, on Saturday uh, from from the island. And uh, they couldn't convince, somehow they couldn't convince the magistrate judge and the district court judge to push things past Friday. Uh, so at uh, <laughs> great, uh, with great effort and a great expense, uh, you know, a boat, a car, three planes, uh, and leaving my wife in Petty St. Vincent, I got back to Richmond uh, on the morning of the first court appearance on that Friday. And I, I had to eat this, in the, you know, uh, above the fold in the Washington Post and a lot of law journal articles. It's like, you know, where in the world is Hank Asbill? And they had pictures of camels crossing the desert and <laughs> trying to figure out why I wasn't at my office and where the hell I was, et cetera. And uh, they never could quite figure it out. But uh, uh, nobody, the judges and the prosecutor were not really willing to push it past uh, past Friday. In the meantime, uh, the governor uh, on the day of the indictment, uh, surrounded by his wife and one or two of his children, uh, gave a press conference in the lobby of the Richmond law firm that was representing one of his kids. Uh, so he gave a, a brief press conference on that same day he was indicted uh, without any attorneys present. Uh, obviously, uh, uh, you know, we knew he was going to say something when he was indicted, and we were well aware of, uh, generally speaking, what he planned to say. And, uh, and obviously, we wanted to be cautious about that. But, uh, you know, he had an absolute right to uh, to respond to the indictment himself, and that's what he did. But Hank, what I mean, did the prosecutors tell you why they had to do it while you went away, or do you think they did it on purpose just to just to mess with you? Well, they obviously did it on purpose, uh, and it did mess with me. Uh, you know, you can connect the dots, uh, but uh, uh, you know, they knew I was going away. Uh, they had committed to not doing it while I was away, and they did it. Yeah, yeah. And so that sets the tone. So, so do you have motions ready to file that when you get back? Yeah, well, the first thing that we had to do, uh, yeah, we did. Uh, I, we had motions prepared, uh, our day one motions, as we call them, uh, that were uh, drafted and ready to go. Uh, two motions. One was uh, accusing the government and asking for an order uh, relating to Brady material because we were convinced in our, from our interaction with the government that they really had 
no clue what was Brady and what was not Brady, uh, and misinterpreted things that we thought clearly were Brady. And so we knew we were going to get uh, uh, shortchanged on that front. Uh, and the second motion we had uh, prepared uh, was a motion basically to uh, require the government to produce the legal instructions that they gave to the grand jury in order to secure the indictment, because we were convinced, again, that they had no clue what the law really was uh, relating to official acts. So therefore, they were going to misinstruct the jury, the grand jury, uh, about the elements of the offense. Uh, and we wanted access to those instructions to support a motion to dismiss the indictment on the grounds that they had misinstructed the grand jury on the law. Uh, so those motions, and those motions were very uh, aggressive uh, in terms of the language and their content. Uh, and we obviously knew that those would be picked up on by the press uh, immediately. Um, and they were. Uh, and you know, this is after Bob has his own press conference. The motions are filed literally within 30 minutes of the indictment being uh, given to the uh, given to the press and given to the clerk's office uh, by the government. You know, Bob got up and said that he never promised and Williams never received any government benefit of any kind from him and, and from his administration. Um, and we basically argued, uh, not, only in the, not in the Brady motion, but in the uh, asking for the uh, legal, legal theory communications between the prosecutors and the grand jury, uh, the opening quote read, it's been a long time since the Roman emperor Caligula imprisoned people for violating laws written in tiny lettering on a pillar too high to see. <laughs> Great. Uh, <I> <laughs> so that, that was, uh, uh, that, that, you know, that's the kind of language that, uh, that was in, in, the, in those opening motions. Um, and uh, so anyway, those, you know, this is, this is our response to the, you know, the six months worth or eight months worth of grand jury leaks uh, and the government's press conference, et cetera, and their announcements about the indictment. Uh, so anyway, this is our response. Bob gets up and says something himself alone. Uh, we file these motions. Uh, we then come into court on that Friday uh, for the, uh, the body hearing and then the uh, arraignment in front of the district court judge. Uh, interesting at the bond hearing, uh, we were assigned to uh, a magistrate judge uh, whom I had had a prior experience with 20 years earlier. And that was the only time I'd ever dealt with him uh, when he was in AUSA. Uh, and that prior experience is sort of worth noting because it, uh, it gave me an absolute uh, uh, locked ground uh, to recuse him. Uh, that I chose not to employ, but I had to make an executive decision about whether or not I was going to move to recuse him. But the essence of the prior interaction, uh, and this is, you know, so anyway, I'm now faced 20 years later with this magistrate judge who starts giving me shit about, uh, uh, well, you know, you guys, uh, uh, you know, we have very strict fair trial free press rules here. I'm going, yeah, I'm well aware of what the rule is. Well, you know, what's your point? He says, well, you're, you're fine. Uh, had a press conference. I'm going, yeah, what's your point? And he said, your client said this and that. And I said, yeah, what's your point? And he said, well, you know, uh, you know, lawyers can't do that. I said, he's not his own lawyer in this case. He happens to be a lawyer, but he's a defendant. 
and he's got a First Amendment right to say whatever the hell he wants. Uh, and, uh, you know, the rule does not apply to him if he's not the defense counsel or pro se defendant. Uh, so anyway, we got into arguments along these lines. And then the, the guy is going, well, I'm going to order the governor not to talk to any potential witness in the case. I said he lives with one of them. <laughs> right. His wife, his children, all his cabinet officers are all witnesses in this case. Uh, you know, that's a ridiculous restriction. Uh, you know, we're happy to not have him talk about the facts uh, that are related by the government to us in the indictment. Uh, but other than that, we want to talk. We're going to talk to friends and relatives, period. And this magistrate, well, you know, you're the only defense lawyer I've ever met who wants his client to be able to talk to witnesses. And I'm going, yeah, well, OK. So anyway, uh, you know, I was on the verge all through this hearing of moving to recuse him. I chose not to because it's a small court. Uh, the prosecutors and the judges are all in judges. Uh, and they interact with each other on a to uh, create waves if I didn't have to to begin with. Anyway, uh, we get the bond conditions that we want, uh, and then we go to the district court judge, and the first words out of his mouth are, uh, you know, the game playing with the press stops now, uh, but he's looking at both the lead prosecutor and me, not just me alone, uh, and so we didn't, we didn't really respond to it, basically. But, uh, you know, that was the end of our trying to uh, interact with the press from that point forward. And, and so as you move past that bond hearing and the initial hearings, um, you, you then have to get ready for trial. And I, and I assume the trial prep has been going on for a long time already. What, what, what kind of... What kind not, of not, really, not really. I mean, not until we saw the indictment and got the discovery. And... Uh, uh, you know, we, we were in court at the end of January, and the judge sets a trial date for the beginning of August, six months away. Right. Uh, which in any other jurisdiction would have been, you know, the trial would have been a year and a half away, not six months away. And, and, and are you able to do some mock juries or focus groups in those six months, or it's just too tight of a time? Yeah. I mean, we, we certainly had time to do that. I mean, we had to plow through the discovery first, and the, uh, I mean, the the discovery, basically. I mean, there were millions and millions of pages uh, of discovery that were produced, uh, and they were slow rolled to us. The government wasn't ready to give us everything we were entitled to immediately, like they were supposed to. Uh, and uh, they then gave us uh, a lot of the documents in a format, some stupid uh, FBI format uh, that uh, called BIDMAS that I'd never heard of before that made it impossible to access these with any degree of specificity. But we got over 5 million pages of documents and ultimately about 185 302s of witness interviews. Um, we were conducting our own witness interviews. We interviewed 49 or 50 people ourselves. Um, and we filed uh, 33 pretrial motions. All this was done in that time frame between the end of January and the beginning of August. So what kind of jury do you end up looking for when you have the governor of, the, of Virginia, of the state you're trying the case in? Do you have a specific jury you're targeting or, or what, what are you looking for? Well, it's interesting. That's an interesting question. The first issue was whether or not we should move for a change of venue, because theoretically in a public corruption case, every citizen in Virginia 
uh, was was a, was a victim of the crime. Right. Uh, but we also had Quinnipiac polls. Uh, McDonald was a very popular governor. Uh, and even post, you know, he had a 65% maybe approval rating to begin with uh, that didn't drop below 60, even after the indictment. Uh, and so we, we thought that uh, if we got a reasonable voir dire, a fair voir dire, uh, that staying in Virginia would be better than trying to move the case somewhere uh, and not getting any reasonable voir dire. Uh, so we were, you know, that was the threshold decision is, is do we move for a change of venue? And I didn't want to. Uh, I wanted to try to really uh, get into the board gear and, uh, and try to find jurors who could be uh, fair and reasonable regardless of whether. Can you get a reasonable voir dire in federal court? We'll find out in For the Defense next. So in state court, when you do voir dire, which is the process where you're questioning the jurors about whether they can be fair or not and trying to find jurors that are suitable for the case. Of course, each side is fighting for jurors that they think will rule for them. But the idea is to weed out jurors that are unfair. Um, So how do you do that? In state court, you're generally permitted lots of time to question the jurors, uh, lots of time in a high profile case to see their answers on a written questionnaire and so on. In federal court, you're lucky if you get 10 minutes for the entire panel. So if they bring in 60 or 70 jurors, you get 10 minutes to question all of them. It's almost impossible to find out who would be unfair or who would be favorable or any of those types of things in that sort of situation. And the voir dire process in federal court has been roundly criticized. But federal judges want to move their cases along. They don't want the gamesmanship of the lawyers trying to uh, get jurors to be pre-tried or or on their side. So they limit, severely limit the lawyers from questioning. And you'll see how the federal judge in the McDonald case does that in For the Defense. Next. And did the judge give you a a reasonable voir dire? No, he didn't. Uh, he didn't and in particular. I mean, we both, uh, the government and ultimately we and the government agreed to uh, a questionnaire. The judge eliminated about half of the questions, rewrote some others uh, to his satisfaction uh, and sent out, sent out this watered down questionnaire. Uh, he then followed it up with an in-court uh, voir dire covering a lot of the things that had already been covered in the questionnaire unnecessarily. And when we got to the issue about pretrial publicity, uh, that's when we really got screwed. Uh, ultimately, the, uh, the government, I mean, you know, our, our combined belief was that if people had been exposed to the press in this case, directly or indirectly, uh, you know, they had to be interviewed one at a time. They had to acknowledge what they had read or heard or seen, et cetera, what they had discussed, what they remembered, how many times, how often, how, you know, does it really stick in your mind? And ultimately, the question is, um, you know, had, did, it, did it cause you to form any opinions one way or another about the outcome of this trial? Is McDonald guilty or innocent? Uh, have, you, have, have any of this impacted uh, any opinions that you might have going into the trial? Um, the judge basically, uh, he understood that that was going to prolong the voir dire because virtually every one of the 200 people that were initially brought into the courtroom uh, as the panel, as a potential panel, 
had been exposed right. to the press, which was voluminous and constant uh, on TV and everywhere else. And all of it, almost all of it, was negative, hugely negative. Uh, so basically, I'm asking, and the prosecutors agreeing that we got to interview these people. And the judge goes, you know, I'm not doing that. Uh, and he literally says, uh, you know, I am going to do something in my own invention. And I thought to myself, this is wonderful. I don't know what he's going to do, but it sounds to me like I've already got a great issue on appeal. <laughs> right. Uh, so, uh, so what he invents is everybody back there in the well, the court, all 200 of you, if you'd have been exposed in any way to press or anything else or any, have any knowledge about this case, stand up. Everybody stands up. Because if you can't be fair, keep standing. Everybody sits down. Uh, then the judge looks at me and says, you know, so there. Uh, and I'm going, this doesn't work for me. And here's a list of 10 questions that I want you to ask each of these people. Uh, and the judge, you know, says, no way I'm doing that, basically. And uh, so we went from there uh, and we did the best we could. And we had jury consultants. The government had jury consultants. Um, and we did the best we could under the circumstances to try to identify people that we thought were hugely toxic right. uh, and get rid of them. And then we were sort of stuck with the remainder. Um, as it turned out, uh, ultimately, uh, initially at least, we did have two jurors who were strongly favorable to the defense, but uh, they didn't last through the trial. Uh, so we ended up without those two that I think would have either convinced the jury to rule otherwise or at least upon the jury. Hank, let me ask you, I mean, trials are so much like theater and, and every appearance uh, matters, how the, even how the uh, client sits, interacts with the lawyer. In this case, there was so much reporting about the governor's interactions with his wife just walking into the courthouse, uh, sitting in the courtroom apart, not really uh, interacting as husband and wife, but, but you know, very far apart from each other. I, I trust that was all planned out. Well, uh, I mean, it, yeah, it was, plan it was planned out. But at the, by the time of the trial, uh, Bob was not living with his wife. Uh, he was instead staying, his wife lived outside, they had a house outside of Richmond, uh, 30 minutes or so from the courthouse uh, where they had both been living. Uh, they obviously were having problems in the marriage, and, and this was uh, the fact of the indictment and the rest of this was very stressful on both of them. Uh, so Bob moved uh, to Richmond and was living in the rectory uh, that, uh, of his priest's, uh, you know, house, his priest's house at a parish uh, in Richmond. Uh, and that was by design. Uh, number one, Bob was working with us until midnight every night. Uh, and so we wanted to have easy access to him in Richmond, uh, number one. And number two, if he had gone home uh, every night, uh, there would have inevit inevitably been uh, arguments, debates, uh, interaction that was non-productive or uh, not, would not be good for either defendant. Uh, to have that kind of stress overlaid on top of a stressful marriage. Um, and so the idea of keeping them separated was important, uh, but it was also the truth of what their relationship was at the time. Sure. So sure. It's not, it was not staged in that sense. It was not feigned. It was legitimate. But, you know, you mentioned something that, that 
resonated with me, which is working till midnight every night, um, getting up at the crack of dawn during trial. It's really, when you're in trial, it's a 24-7 job um, and you get no sleep, you don't eat well, you're stressed to the max. Um, I don't think people really get it. And this was a five-week trial where everything you did was scrutinized. It wasn't even just the regular stress of a trial. I mean, how, just to put aside this, you know, McDonald yeah. for a second, how did you deal with the stress and how did you deal with uh, having to basically close your practice for all those weeks and, and, and deal with a case like this? Well, I mean, you know, I was at Jones Day at the time and they have 2,700 lawyers. So, the, you know, the rest of the practice basically could be uh, right. put on hold and, and other folks could help out and keep things up in the air until I got through with this. Uh, and I had tremendous support. I, I took uh, uh, five lawyers with me uh, down to Richmond and the Holland and Knight people had a, an equivalent team and the Quinn Emanuel people had an equivalent size team. So we had 15 or 18 lawyers uh, at a hotel in Richmond. And I who had paid five, for all of it? Who paid for all that? Paid what? Who uh, paid? Well, theoretically, the clients are supposed to be paying for it. But, you know, the fact of the matter is the clients are still behind in terms of payment. So. Uh, you know, they had some money and a lot of that went towards expenses and some went to fees. But, uh, you know, the fees were enormous or would have been enormous in the case if they had been uh, ultimately collected. Uh, but uh, the chairman of my firm, having agreed that, that we would take on this case, uh, you know, was like, you know, do the case, do the best you can. We'll worry about the money later. Uh, and McDonald had the proven ability uh, as a governor and head of the uh, Republican Governors Association, he raised $50 million in one year uh, for Republican governors around the country. And he had a lot of uh, wealthy friends who were donors. And he had a lot of friends in the Notre Dame community uh, who also had a good deal of money. And so we were uh, ultimately uh, convinced that at the end of the day, uh, Bob would figure out some way to make good, but it was his responsibility to pay for his children's lawyers, his wife's lawyers, his own lawyers, etc. cetera. Uh, but in any event, uh, I also had five people working back in the office uh, uh, at Jones Day uh, that were going over transcripts daily, coming up with motions, coming up with ideas, uh, et cetera. Uh, so it was, a, it was a big operation, but in terms of how I dealt with it, uh, you know, I just soul focused and I slept about four hours a day. Uh, I tried to get, uh, you know, about an hour's worth of exercise uh, uh, every day. Uh, but that's it. I mean, there, you know, there was no day that was less than 16 hours and many were 20 hours. Right. Uh, and, you know, it takes stamina. Uh, but the, the real, you know, the real, real problematic overlay here was the press. Uh, which created hassles and problems every single day uh, for us, including uh, uh, camping out in our hotel. So every, if you went down to dinner uh, with another lawyer in the case and you wanted to talk about something relating to the case, you know, you had no idea if the guy at the next table was a reporter or not, unless we just happened to recognize them. Uh, but there were, you know, 20, 30 reporters who had rooms at the hotel uh, and we didn't know who many of these folks were, but so anyway, there were spies everywhere. We had a big war room and a conference room where we could get, you know, buffet dinner at the hotel if we wanted to uh, just work through dinner. Um, but there are people, you know, outside of the rooms, outside of your, your own room, if you're talking to the governor in a suite in the hotel, 
there are people in the hallways. That's insane. Uh, and the minute you leave to go to court, uh, you are followed by a rugby scrum of reporters who literally, I mean, just surrounded you, 50, 60, 70 reporters on the two-block walk to the courthouse and from the courthouse, sticking microphones in your client's face and throwing questions at him, uh, and you're sort of shuffling along, but they're literally physically assaulting the lawyers, trying to push them out of the way to get face-to-face with the client. The good news was that because he was a governor and a politician, uh, he knew how to deal with the press. He knew how to deal with that, and it wasn't all that uh, disconcerting, but the judge, uh, the judge would not put any restrictions on the press. I mean, he wouldn't give us like a, you know, a blockade gate or something in front of the courthouse that the press couldn't pass. Uh, he was unwilling to, uh, you know, to employ any kind of strategies to and from court. Um, so we lived with 45 minutes early because it's going to take, you know, 30 minutes to get through the rugby scrum and to get through the uh, marshals. Uh, so in any event, you just sort of have to adjust. And, and we had sandwiches and stuff delivered uh, to the courthouse for lunch. And, uh, right. uh, you know, so anyway, that's, that's how we dealt with it. But, um, and then finally, ultimately, in terms of getting work done at night, um, Bob, uh, you know, like, I mean, he's a great client. I love Bob in a lot of ways, but he's, you know, he's got the trifecta of problems for a client. Uh, you know, he, he is a lawyer. He's a chief executive, uh, and he is a politician. <laughs> and those are difficult things to deal with in a client. Uh, and he would like to, you know, run around the room, the, the war room at night and talk, what are you working on? And what about this? And what about that? And wouldn't it be better if we did this? Wouldn't it be better if we did that? Finally, finally I just, you know, I had to, to sort of make it clear to Bob. I said, you know, there, there are two things that you have the right to control. One is you can testify or not, and the other is you can plead guilty or not. All the rest of the calls are mine. Uh, and I know you've got ideas, and some of them are great, et cetera, but you're interfering with all the assignments that we've given out to people. Uh, so I tasked one associate uh, who reminded Bob of one of his daughters to go sit in the corner with Bob, take all of his questions, advice, suggestions, et cetera, and then distribute them at some you know, <laughs> relevant time uh, to the people who were working on those issues. But I said, you can't, keep, you can't keep disturbing everyone who's working on something in the middle of what they're doing all night long. But he would have worked without stop uh, you know, and slept one hour a night. Unbelievable. Uh, as a governor, that's what he did. He worked 16-hour days for you know, four years as a governor. Did Governor McDonald actually help the defense team? We'll find out in For the Defense next. So yes, many white collar criminal defense lawyers talk about the challenges in representing other lawyers or politicians or even in general white collar defendants who are smart, who have built up uh, success and money and they believe that they can persuade a jury themselves or that they know what's best for the defense. So yes, in some ways and in some times they are challenging, but I'll tell you a story of a challenging case that I had a challenging client. 
I had just left the public defender's office. Literally the day I was moving my office into my new office, I was in jeans and a t-shirt. And at the time, Chief Judge Moreno called me into court and I went, there was a packed courtroom. Chief Judge Moreno asked me in front of everyone, now that you've left the public defender's office, do you still believe in the constitution? Everyone laughed and I laughed and I said, of course, judge, why, what's up? He said, meet your new client. And there, uh, sitting there in, in handcuffs with five marshals around him uh, was my new client. And Judge Moreno told me he needs a new lawyer because he just built a knife, a shift in the jail to kill his then public defender. So you're appointed. We're going to start trial in two weeks. I tried to talk to the client back in lockup and he wouldn't say anything to me. I knew he spoke a little bit of English. He was a Turkish national and he would not speak a word to me. So I was trying to figure out how could I gain the trust of this client? How could I meet with him? And it was over the holiday season, just like it is now. And my father-in-law, who was a wonderful man, I miss him, was in town and he's from Turkey and, and spoke Turkish. So I brought him to the jail. It was easier to get into the jail in those days. And I brought him to the jail. And for the next hour, he and my client spoke in Turkish. I didn't understand a word what they said. I still don't know what they talk about. But after that, the client referred to me as family and trusted me. So it's just not white collar uh, defendants who present challenges. All clients have, you need to build trust with, you need to develop a rapport with. And that was one uh, out there example of how we did it. Let's get back to the podcast and see what happens with Governor McDonald in For the Defense next. You know, one of the fascinating parts of the trial to me was Johnny Williams himself, the cooperating witness, you know, what we've been calling in class a lot as the snitch. And what, what's amazing to me is in reading about the case, I see that he got a complete pass, full immunity to testify, no charges, no plea, no nothing. And, and that struck me as pretty remarkable in a case like this to give a Johnny Williams a complete pass. Were you surprised that they did that? Yeah, no, I was appalled. Uh, I mean, obviously, the initial uh, agreement with his lawyers was to, uh, was to give him a pass on public corruption-related charges. Uh, but they made, then they figured out, uh, because Johnny had good lawyers, that, uh, that he had a Fifth Amendment privilege because I was going to cross-examine Johnny on unrelated criminal tax violations and securities fraud violations that he was committing simultaneously uh, during the time frame he was dealing with my client. Uh, so they had to give him a pass on, on the tax and the securities fraud violations. And then the government went so far as to do something I'd never seen before. Uh, there were two shareholder actions filed by shareholders in Star Scientific against Johnny for securities fraud. Uh, and those were filed. Uh, one of them was in Richmond. Another was in, uh, uh, I think, Detroit. Uh, unrelated, unrelated completely factually uh, to the charges, the uh, corruption charges in the case. And the government was not a party in those civil actions. These were shareholders alone, uh, not, you know, it's not uh, the SEC or any regulatory agency. And the government went, without our knowledge, to those courts and had the courts stay those cases and freeze those cases uh, because the government was afraid that if the civil discovery in those matters uh, went forward, uh, that I might somehow be able to convince the 
plaintiff's lawyers in those cases to share some of the discovery with me that they obtained uh, via that process. Uh, and, we're, and the government was afraid that I could find something that I could use against Williams. So they, um, they went so far as to interfere on those other actions uh, behind our back. Uh, we filed a motion uh, with respect to that, arguing that the government was uh, interfering with our right to investigate the case and, and uh, you know, present a defense, basically. Uh, and obviously, the undercurrent to that motion was misconduct uh, by the government, uh, which the judge was not about to, to uh, find unless he absolutely had no choice. Uh, anyway, I had one of my uh, young associates who's anxious for some airtime argue the motion. Um, and the judge looks at it and basically says, uh, he said, if you think that I am granting this motion, you are dancing in fantasy land. <laughs> Uh, so that was the uh, uh, that was the sort of end of it, uh, uh, basically. But yeah, I mean, I thought the government's uh, uh, accommodations of Johnny Williams were absurd, uh, and that ultimately came back to haunt the government at the time of sentencing, uh, when uh, uh, a prior governor of Virginia uh, testified as a defense witness, basically, and uh, trashed the government for their deal with Johnny Williams. But before we get to sentencing, I, I want to talk about the cross of Johnny Williams because he, he made a, it seemed on direct, at least from the news reports and the transcript, that he was doing pretty well on direct um, and, and, and doing uh, what somebody who gets immunity does, which is, you know, make the government happy during their questioning on direct. But then you got on cross and you just got a string of, I don't recall answers, which at least when I'm questioning a witness, I love when I start getting those because then you know you've got them. And he even started saying, I don't recall when you were asking about a meeting with the prosecutor a couple of days before. I mean, really good stuff. Yeah. I mean, he, he claimed not to remember anything. Uh, and he also claimed to have you know, every conversation he had supposedly was privileged uh, in some way. Uh, and he didn't recall anything, uh, obviously on purpose. This is somebody that uh, we were led to believe had a photographic memory. Uh, in terms of his skill sets. Johnny was not formally well-educated, but he was a very smart guy uh, and a super salesman, uh, historically, essentially, and a very charming uh, kind of guy. Uh, but he, uh, yeah, I mean, it was, you know, he tried to make himself, and his lawyers helped. His lawyers did a very good job of trying to make him impervious, essentially, to any effective cross-examination because Johnny just claimed you know, not to remember, not doing, you know, so in any event, unless you want to bring out a document, laboriously go through it every single time you ask a question with him, you're going to get nowhere uh, in this case because he claimed not to remember or anything or claimed that it was privileged and you have to undercut that in order to go forward. So it just turned out to be, uh, you know, we would have uh, expanded the length of the trial by five or six days of dealing with Johnny Williams. Uh, if we went in that direction, uh, interestingly, uh, the strategy of the Quinn Emanuel lawyer for the wife with Johnny was to just uh, just ask Johnny to talk about himself uh, and to just let him run wild. You know, tell me about yourself. Tell me about your career. Tell me about everything you know that you do, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and that and that lawyer's theory was that Johnny will just somehow. Uh, you know, annoy the hell out of the jury with his grandiosity and with his bullshit and his inability to answer a direct question 
uh, etc. cetera. Uh, I wasn't a fan of the strategy, uh, but that was the strategy that the, uh, uh, that the lawyer who went before me on, uh, on, uh, on Johnny employed. Uh, but it was, uh, yeah, I mean, it, you know, I, I thought basically, it, you know, it was, a, it was a joke. And at the end of the day, uh, I mean, the things that he said that were true were uncontestable. Uh, and, you know, I mean, he really had never gotten anything. Uh, he had never gotten anything, you know, whatever he claimed he wanted, he agreed he never directly asked for uh, for the governor. And he also agreed that he never really got anything. And, and that was the key. I mean, obviously, to the defense theory. And we'll talk a minute about, unfortunately, he got screwed with the jury instructions, you know, with the district court and, and how important those were. But, you know, for your case, you end up calling your client, obviously, committed to it in opening. And, and the governor, I think, Everyone expected him to testify anyway. How, how can you not call the governor to testify in his own defense? He was on the stand for a while. Um, yeah, five days, 27 hours. It's a long time to have somebody on the stand. Um, and, and, you know, he's obviously a very skilled order. He's, he's uh, people like him, as you said before, but he did get into it with the prosecutor, it seemed like, from reading some of the transcripts. And I saw the prosecutor ended his cross um, using McDonald's own inaugural address, he said something like, uh, the scriptures say, say to whom much is given, much will be required. And then he asked them uh, about Williams giving them 177000 in the loans and gifts. Um, how, how did you deal with that? Did, did you jump up and, and ask directly about that line of questioning? No, I mean that was on that was on a uh, uh, redirect. By in my recollection, it was on redirect by Mike Dry, uh, uh, but uh, and I didn't have any recross. I wasn't going to allow that. The judge would not allow any recross unless. It was no, that done. was of your that was so so that was the cross of of McDonald. Yeah, and, and then you get up to redirect. I, think I get up to redirect him. No, I had a I had a list of a, I wanted to keep the redirect uh, to uh, you know a limited uh, amount. Of, Time essentially, uh, and just cover some points that I thought were uh, were more important than that. But I parked that thought uh, in terms of dealing with uh, with that comment. I wanted to. I knew that they were going to use that in closing argument, and I wanted to have a counter to it in closing, uh, which I did. Uh, in terms of Mike Dry's, uh, you know, comments about you know to to whom many is you know too much is given, you you owe much in return, etc. I wanted to turn that around essentially on the prosecutors uh, who had been given a lot of authority, basically, and uh, they're required not to abuse that authority, uh, which we argue that they did. I always thought that was the Spider-Man quote, um, and and not the uh, not from scriptures. But what but what do I know? But well, I, I had the, the the scripture <laughs> the scripture quote for Bob in terms of preparing Bob to testify. Uh, you know, is like. Matthew 23. I mean, Bob was a very religious guy and he read the Bible a lot, etc. cetera. Uh, and I found a, 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 you know, there was a, you know, some Gideon's Bible uh, at the Marriott Hotel in the nightstand uh, of the room that I had. And, uh, you know, one night when I couldn't sleep and I'm paging through this, I find this, uh, I find this quote. Uh, and the basic quote is, uh, you know, they're only, the essence of it is uh, in, in, in more common language, uh, there are only two answers to every question. Uh, yay, yay, or nay, nay. Everything else comes from the mouth of the devil. 
Uh, so I, this is what I kept uh, trying to remind Bob about. I said, if you're not going to listen to me in terms of me telling you what you should do or not do when you testify, listen to God, uh, <laughs> you know, whom I'm now quoting because, uh, you know, this is, this is the right recommendation. Uh, but it took a lot of, you know, we spent a hell of a lot of time with Bob uh, working on this because politicians like to talk. And, uh, you know, and we wanted, uh, we wanted Bob to keep it controlled uh, and to answer the questions that were posed to him uh, and not have the judge interfere. And we were very much afraid because the judge had interfered uh, with other witnesses uh, and with lawyers who were questioning witnesses. Uh, he had interfered repeatedly. Uh, and I did not, I did not want to have anything, you know, any, any sort of arguments with the judge or anything go wrong in that sense. I didn't want, I wanted the judge to be isolated, stay out of my way. Uh, don't get, you know, don't get him irritated. Don't get him pissed off. Don't get him chastising me, uh, like he had done to some of the other defense counsel in the case when he felt that they were, uh, asking stupid questions or repetitive questions or irrelevant questions or whatever. Uh, the judge had no qualms about interfering uh, with defense lawyering. He very rarely did that with the government. It's so annoying when judges do that. It, it really bothers me. Well, I mean, for example, uh, you know, one of the key pieces of evidence in McDonald's direct testimony was an email that he wrote to his wife uh, in the middle of this case, in the middle of, the, uh, of his terrible relationship with his wife, talking about how depressed he was about the state of their marriage. Uh, and how much the marriage had disintegrated. Uh, and it was only like a, a paragraph or two long. Uh, and I wanted Bob to read this email out loud to the jury that he had written to his wife. Uh, and, you know, he said, you know, the judge says, well, you know, no, you know, that'll take too long or something. And, you know, they can read it if they want to look at it. You can move it into evidence. So, you know, that was his general theory. Just move it all in. If the jury wants to look at it, they can look at it later. Uh, so the way I got around the judge in that circumstance was like, well, you know, uh, I'll try to short circuit it. And I, you know, I jumped to a sentence in the middle of the email. And I'm saying, Bob, you know, you say this in the email. Tell me more about that. Uh, meanwhile, it's up on the screen. Right. Uh, and the jury is reading the entire email as I'm focusing on this one sentence. Uh, you know, the judge, the judge knew exactly what I was doing. Uh, and he sort of looks at me with daggers in his eyes, but, you know, he can't really interfere because I have not uh, violated his instruction not to sort of prolong, uh, you know, the, the reading of the email. I love it. I love it. So, so we, get, we get to closing, Hank, and, uh, you know, uh, by this time you know what the instructions are going to be, and, and it's almost like a directed verdict, but you gave this closing um, wonderful lines. I, I'm going to read some of the lines, which is, so, so, so we can hear him, but I, I, like, I like the following. You say, Johnny Williams pitches the government this story better than he ever sold a, a Nata block. This is his greatest con. You said uh, he's trying, uh, the government's trying to turn a party invitation into a federal felony and ignore the attempt to assassinate Bob McDonald's character with the quid. There was no quo and there was no plan. And, and, and that really is the case. Unfortunately, the judge doesn't give the instruction about official act. And so McDonald and his wife end up getting convicted. The prosecutor asks for some ridiculous sentence. I see 12 years under the, under the guidelines. 
Um, and you, you end up getting two years, which to me is a huge sentencing win. I mean, how, how did you feel at the time when you got those two years? Well, let me, let me, uh, let me follow up on a couple of points that you yep. there in terms of this. Um, he, he clearly screwed us on the instructions, and it was a directed verdict. And I say that not only because his instructions were, uh, you know, were found deficient by the Supreme Court ultimately, and they did uh, direct a verdict. Uh, and two jurors were interviewed by the press, not by me, after the verdict. Uh, and one of the, these are people who found him guilty. And one of them said, you know, we asked ourselves, would he have gotten the gifts or the loans if he weren't the governor? And if that was the question at issue in the trial, we were dead on arrival. Of course. We were dead on arrival. The other jurors said that, you know, she knew Bob was on the stand five days and she believed everything Bob said. And he certainly never said that he committed a crime. Right. Uh, so anyway, that's. Uh, you know, that was the, the end result. Um, as I told you before, uh, you know, when we were talking about doing this uh, exercise tonight, uh, we played this case to begin with to win in the Supreme Court uh, because we were really afraid that we would have trouble with, uh, with a jury based on the nature of the quid uh, and all the bad press, uh, et cetera. We knew we were going to have problems. Uh, we knew we weren't going to get a fair shake uh, in Richmond in terms of sort of standard operating procedures there with the, with the bench. Uh, so we were, you know, we were hopeful that we could win, we would win a trial and we tried to win a trial. Uh, and, you know, obviously we were trying to undercut all of the government's uh, arguments about whether or not there was any quo. Uh, and we were trying to focus on Bob's good character, which was exceptional. Uh, and we were hopeful that the jury might, uh, you know, might give us a, a verdict or we'd get a hung jury uh, at least, but we were hopeful for an acquittal if we could secure it. Uh, but we were assiduously careful of not doing anything during the trial that might negatively impact the potential appeal because we were hugely confident that we knew what the law was and the DOJ did not, that they'd gotten the law wrong when they indicted. Uh, so, for example, uh, you know, when Hazel, Dr. Hazel testified, uh, you know, I, I mean, the government's strategy was always to play for redirect because they knew we wouldn't get recross. So, uh, you know, so if you ask somebody directly, did, did Bob ever pressure you to do anything, uh, et cetera? Uh, and even if the witness would say no, if the government uh, had evidence that they could use, they would come back and, uh, and try to uh, undercut that uh, on, uh, on, their, uh, on their redirect. Uh, so basically, there are a couple of witnesses that I thought were dicey in terms of what the government could make them do or make them eat, uh, based on what I knew from interviewing them and from the 302 reports. Um, so with a couple of witnesses like Hazel, uh, said no cross. You know, they did their direct. They were sandbagging for the redirect, hoping that we would step into it and say he never pressured you or anything like that, uh, et cetera. And so we just let it ride. It's it's hard for a defense lawyer to say no no cross no questions. I mean we're we're used to we like to we like to get up and 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 go after these people. It's hard. It is hard, particularly when we had done it with other witnesses that we were more confident about. Uh, but I you know I I understood if uh, if Hazel said uh, you know it didn't get to me, but I thought Bob was trying to pressure me to do something favorable for Johnny uh, Williams. 
we're at, we're out of luck on appeal right there. Right. We got nothing. Right. Uh, we have no appellate arguments basically. So we were, uh, you know, we were, as I said, I mean, I wanted to win the trial uh, desperate, you know, I definitely wanted to win the trial and we tried like hell to win the trial. Uh, but we knew if we got bad instructions that it was going to be exceedingly difficult uh, to win the trial. Um, so we wanted to make sure that we preserved uh, these issues for appeal, uh, you know, which we did. Uh, and, you know, at the end of the case, um, um, you know, I mean, the government, uh, the government wouldn't agree to bond pending appeal. Uh, neither would the judge. We had to go get that from the Fourth Circuit. Uh, we had to... Uh, after the Fourth Circuit ruled against Bob, and by the way, on the Fourth Circuit, we, after the panel ruled against us, uh, which were all uh, Democratic-appointed judges, uh, recently appointed judges uh, or Democrats, um, we asked for rehearing in bank. Seven members of the Court of Appeals in the Fourth Circuit recused themselves because they were friends of Bob. Uh, so we got a really restrictive audience in terms of the uh, rehearing in bank issue, uh, and obviously the Fourth Circuit would not uh, stay the mandate uh, while we were going to go to the Supreme Court. So we ultimately convinced the Supreme Court to give us bond or to stay that's the a, Circuit's mandate. That's was, a pretty good sign. Uh, it was an historic event. They had never given bond to somebody uh, in the Supreme Court uh, since David Trong in late 1970s. I, I have to say, when when I saw that you asked. I, I said, this has 0% chance. A lot, it got reported that you had asked, obviously. And, and when the Supreme Court granted it, I was, I was shocked. And I, I told everybody, I, I, I've never seen this. And, and it's obviously a great sign for the governor. And you guys must have, it must have been a huge day for you all. Governor McDonald got bond in the Supreme Court. We'll hear about the oral arguments and the holding next and for the defense. Governor McDonald lost a trial. He lost on appeal in the Fourth Circuit, but now he was before the Supreme Court. And the question before the Supreme Court was, even if he accepted all of these gifts from Johnny Williams, even if he and his wife accepted them, did he commit an official act, even if he did not take or pressure anyone to take any action on a government matter? He asked for jury instructions in the trial court saying things that merely arranging a meeting or attending an event or hosting a reception or making a speech is not standing alone an official act. But the trial judge refused to give that instruction and the appellate court refused to say that it was reversible error. So we get to the Supreme Court and Hank Asbill and his team for Governor McDonald are saying that what the governor did was not a crime. And we'll find out how that turns out in For the Defense next. Yeah, I mean, I think, and of all the, I mean, there was tremendous writing done in this case by a lot of great lawyers at, uh, at Jones Day in particular. Uh, and, you know, that I, I played some role in, but certainly not complete, the complete the author of these pleadings. But uh, um, a lot of appellate people that have been Supreme Court clerks were working with us on this. And the, the motion in the Supreme Court for bond was the best brief in the entire case. So Hank, what, what did the Supreme Court ultimately hold? Because I've read the opinion now a couple of times and I'm still not 100% sure what an official act is. <laughs> they know one when they see one, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, I, you know, I mean, 
you know, the essence of it from our perspective or the way we tried to, you know, try to argue it in below, essentially, and, and in the Court of Appeals on all levels, uh, was, you know, Bob had to put his thumb on the scale uh, in terms of a decision either that he made or that, you know, he tried to get someone else that he controlled or directed to make. Uh, you know, tell the stat, tell the uh, tell the health commission to do this, or uh, you know, tell this person, et cetera, to do something for Johnny Williams. Uh, all Bob did was give Johnny Williams access to various government officials, and he could make his pitch. If they thought it was a good idea, fine. If they didn't think it was a good idea, fine. You know, if if somebody wants to, uh, you know, get a catering con contract for the Bureau of Prisons, uh, you know, whatever. Uh, you know, fine, you know, I'll set you up with an interview. You go try to, you make your pitch to them about why you ought to get the contract uh, and they make their decision. And Bob never did anything more than that in any context. And a lot of the things that he did were even much more innocuous, uh, like inviting Johnny Williams to an event, you know, to a reception at the mansion uh, that 250 invites went out and 125 people RSVP'd yes. And Bob didn't say anything about uh, about uh, Johnny Williams or Nata Block or Star Scientific during this healthcare leaders event. Uh, and clearly, uh, Johnny Williams was portraying himself as a chair of a public company uh, engaged in developing products that were related, massively related to healthcare problems. You know that was his whole pitch. And, and, and you, get this, you get this great opinion then going through all of that. And it's really, I mean, the chief justice writes this wonderful, unanimous opinion, but you get to the last paragraph. Yeah. And, and the last paragraph says, there is no doubt that this case is distasteful. It may be worse than that, but our concern is not with tawdry tales of Ferraris, Rolexes, and ball gowns. And then it goes on to talk about, it. I mean, what... what did he need to write that at the end there? And, and I, 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 I think he probably needed to write that to get unanimous opinion. Yeah. Uh, but I, you know, obviously, uh, you know, from the, uh, from the oral argument, basically, uh, you know, I was convinced that we were clearly going to win. Uh, and, and I thought we would sweep it, uh, which we did. So did Mike Dreven, who argued for the government. Uh, he was completely deflated uh, at the end of the, uh, at the end of the oral argument. Uh, and, uh, you know, and, and I mean, basically, you know, this follows on the heels of the Supreme Court taking a half dozen criminal cases, each of which they reversed because the government was overzealous uh, in terms of prosecuting people on theories that were real reaches or real stretches under vague laws that they had encouraged Congress to enact. Uh, and the ultimate pitch, basically, uh, even during oral argument in the Supreme Court, was, you know, leave it up to our discretion and we'll be judicious about how we exercise it. We'll do the right uh, thing. And, and, yeah, we'll do the right, we'll do the right thing. And they look at, you know, like, well, excuse me, you know, we've had four or five cases in the past couple of years where we've ruled that you haven't done the right thing. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, we've had to reverse those convictions because you all have overreached in terms of interpreting these vague statutes. There's a lenity issue here. There's a federalism issue here. Uh, the bottom line is that I don't think the government ever truly understood the nature of the job of being a governor. I don't think they understood the business of being a governor. 
uh, in ways that were realistic. Uh, and Bob had come into Virginia. You know, you got one term by statute. You got one term. You can't run successively. So you got four years to do something without trying to run again for office. He's in the middle of the worst recession in the history of the state of Virginia at the time. His motto is Bob's for jobs, trying to bring back the economy in Virginia. And if anybody said that they would bring a business to Virginia or hire people in Virginia or give money to schools in Virginia like Johnny was doing, fine, bring it on. I'm all for it because that's my job here is to try to reinvigorate the economy in this state. Uh, and the way, you know, so you know, Bob goes to receptions, he's getting people approaching him all the time. Can you do this? Can you do that? Blah, blah, blah. And Bob says, you know, call this guy in my cabinet or call that guy in my cabinet. His job was to say, yes, I can get you an audience. Their job was to say, no, your idea is bullshit or your idea is a good idea. But that wasn't his job. And so what, what, what happened to the governor? He wins his case. He's free. He's a free man. What, what is he doing now? Uh, well, he's ultimately gotten divorced from his wife. Uh, he is, uh, he's, he uh, was back working with his old law firm in Virginia Beach, uh, doing some legal work and some sort of brain uh, uh, making. Uh, he's writing a book uh, that he's in the middle of, uh, of that project uh, as well. Uh, and he is... Uh, He's going around, uh, you know, doing a lot of, uh, of business, a variety of different kinds of business development uh, projects. Um, I mean, and, you know, this is this is somebody who was on a short list to be asked to be vice president or possibly run for president in the Republican Party. Um, and, um, you know, we'd obviously, pro- we'd probably be in a lot better place uh, yeah. if that uh, would have happened. So, so. And I, the other thing I want to say, though, is that the other sort of overarching strategy that we employed from the beginning was the use of amicus briefs. Uh, and we filed an amicus, two amicus briefs in the district court, which the judge refused to accept and would not read because he said, I don't have to, there's no rule or case saying I have to take the briefs. Uh, one from five former attorneys generals saying they would have told Bob if they were his attorney general that what he was doing was okay. Uh, and we also had the NACDL writing a brief uh, Harvard Law Professors, uh, Nancy Gertner, Charles Ogletree, uh, writing a brief about the official act issue. The judge wouldn't read them. Uh, we ramped that up to about a half dozen in the Fourth Circuit, and we ramped it up to about 11 uh, uh, amicus briefs in the Supreme Court, uh, including uh, one that Roberts found particularly compelling, uh, which was an amicus brief by uh, numerous former high-ranking uh, people uh, uh, in the Justice Department, the Solicitor Generals, uh, Deputy Attorney Generals, etc., both parties, you know, all saying uh, that, you know, the government's interpretation of the law is wrong. Uh, and so that was, a, that was one of the overarching strategies we thought about employing from the very beginning of the case, and we did. Uh, and the only time we got any real traction on it, however, was in the Supreme Court. You rarely see uh, the Supreme Court cite to amicus briefs, and, and Robert cites the two right up front, and, and the one you mentioned uh, obviously had a lot of impact on him, and, and I think part of it was that you had both sides, Republicans and Democrats, supporting uh, the position. But I, I've used up a lot of uh, the classroom's time. I, I want to see if the students have some questions for you. They, they probably 
have better questions than I do. So I'm going to I'm going to turn uh, it over to them and let them ask some questions. And I think we have a, a couple minutes left if we can indulge you for a few more minutes, Hank. Yeah, I want to make one final comment about the sentence. I, I think this is something that, uh, uh, I mean, aside from putting on a lot of more character witnesses at the time of sentencing, because the judge restricted me in terms of how many would allow me to put on in front of the jury, um, we filed uh, a voluminous pleading at sentencing that uh, had, uh, you know, maybe four or 500 letters, individual letters from people telling anecdotal stories about Bob McDonald and the things that he had done for people. Uh, and uh, I mean, a very, very compelling presentation and story. And to ramp up the guideline score by says Bob had lied during his testimony in front of the jury. Uh, and the judge, uh, and so therefore he ought to get an obstruction enhancement as part of the sentencing, a part of the calculus for the sentencing. The judge refused to accept that recommendation or that motion from the government, uh, did not find that Bob had lied at all uh, during his testimony. And I think, uh, I think you know, that the judge, uh, the judge knew that he had to give some respect to the jury for its verdict. But I think in his heart of hearts, he didn't really believe the jury arrived at the correct verdict. Um, and so he gave Bob the, uh, the two-year sentence uh, as opposed to the guideline sentence of 12 plus years that the government had originally uh, had originally requested. Um, but you know we uh, I mean that that turned out you know great obviously but you know there were also uh, strategic decisions at the time of the sentencing about whether or not we would move to recuse the district court judge. And, I did not think had given us a fair trial or a fair pretrial. Uh, I made the executive decision that we're not going to raise this or bring this motion, uh, and we need to play this right with this judge and and uh, you know play up the military service, play the religious uh, in Bob's you know uh, obvious religious uh, uh, um, you know uh, character, etc. His general good character um, and the fact that he was literally the most empathic person. I've ever known uh, in, you know, in dealing with him for, you know, a thousand hours. I never heard him say a negative word about another human being, including Johnny Williams, including the prosecutors, including the judge, you know, and many of those folks, I had a lot of negative things to say about, uh, but he would never engage in that. I and, wasn't there and I'm ready to say some bad things about Johnny Williams. And he never did. Uh, he never, he never did, but that's, you know, that's the kind of person uh, that he is and was, and, you know, not a political bedfellow of mine in terms of, um, you know, uh, conservative Republican, et cetera, but, uh, uh, you know, a very decent human being uh, who I think generally always tried to do what he thought was right. And he was also, I mean, you know, Bob is a greedy guy who wanted these gifts and the shit like that. I mean, you know, Bob had a car that had 200,000 miles on it. Bob's briefcase was a plastic milk crate. That's what he carried his papers around. Okay, you're giving your closing argument again, Hank. We got uh, we, we, we've we've heard we heard this closing uh, argument. All right, let me let me I'm see done. what the students let me see what the students have to I'm say. I'm happy happy to stay as long as the uh, okay. He's got a question for us. You gotta love Hank's passion. He's still arguing for Bob McDonald even before the students of my white collar crime class. But now the students have some questions. Um, feel free to listen. I've included them. They go on for about 
15 more minutes. And it's pretty interesting to see the student's perspective and where they're coming from. And there's some interesting question and answers coming up next in For the Defense. Um, so my question is, now, in hindsight, we know now that the winning argument is the government's wrong about what constitutes an official act. Um, the opening and the closing, like you said, really focus on his good character. But the government, it's, their opening seems like their, their whole argument is, look at all the smoke, look at all the smoke, where there's smoke, there's fire. Um, how did you, it sounds like your argument was more, there's no smoke, this is a great guy, there's no smoke. Um, how did you come to that, that strategy rather than the government's wrong about what constitutes an official act? Why did you choose to keep trying to, to rely on his good character when even before the trial started, you know, with the publicity, the, it's already, he's, his name's already been smeared, the Ferrari, whatever. The jury already feels a certain way about his character. Why focus on that rather than the law? Well, I mean, a couple, a couple of things. You know, the jury is not going to decide the law. The judge is going to do that. Or the Court of Appeals is going to do that. And we assume uh, that because, you know, we had motions to dismiss the indictment that were denied, that we were not going to get uh, good jury instruction. So in terms of uh, of trying the case, we were not going to deny that there was this quid parade. Uh, there are a lot of things that Bob or his family got, some of which he knew about, some of which he didn't know about. Uh, but our position at the trial, essentially, uh, was that, okay, he got these gifts, but he never did anything for Johnny Williams in return. Uh, and it's legal in Virginia for a governor to receive gifts uh, you know, from people that want to give him gifts. And this is historically uh, what every governor in Virginia has done. Uh, so, you know, whether you like the fact that he's getting gifts, I, I couldn't deny that he got the gifts. I couldn't deny that he knew about a number of them. Uh, so he basically said, you know, there's, there's quid here, there's undeniable quid, there's no pro for anything, and there is no quo. Uh, and so, you know, where, where is the quo? Where's the return? Where is the, where does Johnny get what he wants or where does Johnny get a promise to give him what he wants? And that never existed in the case. Uh, and so if, you, if the law is you got to have a quid pro quo and there's no quo, whether you like, you know, whether you're uh, uh, upset about the quid, so be it. You can be upset about the quid. Uh, and we got to acknowledge that that looks terrible. It looks bad. It looks unseemly. Uh, but, you know, this is standard operating procedure uh, in Virginia politics. Uh, and we had to try to overcome the press reports to the contrary, uh, that this was something that, you know, the quid alone uh, made Bob guilty. So, you know, we, we argued that legally they can't meet the quid pro quo test. Alternatively, uh, the jury instruction is on character evidence is that evidence of good character alone can create a reasonable doubt. Did you get that instruction? Yeah, we got that instruction. I got that instruction. Uh, so I wanted, you know, uh, and you really are looking at, you know, what Bob knew, when he knew it, what was Bob's intent? Uh, and I wanted to both uh, have the jury like Bob in terms of his character, and I was also setting this up for the judge at the time of sentencing, if we lost. Uh, that's why I wanted, you know, and I think uh, 
you know, character, if you've got good character for your client, if he has a good reputation, uh, it is, it can be an extremely powerful tool in any kind of criminal case, particularly white collar cases, uh, where, you know, uh, interpretation of events, uh, you know, uh, amorphous, uh, uh, cryptic things are at issue uh, or reflexive emails and things of that nature. And you've got to have, uh, you know, if the guy says, this is not what I meant, or this is what it says, but it wasn't what I meant, or I didn't know this, or I didn't know that, you got to believe the guy uh, and you got to want to help him. Uh, and so I was intent on putting on evidence of his good character to try to have the jury like him, have the jury want to try to save him even if they had serious questions about whether or not he had done something wrong. Okay, I got another question for you. Here we go. <clears throat> Thank you so much for coming. Uh, my question is, uh, I guess, relates to the influence peddling. There's no pro quo because influence peddling isn't an official act. Do you think the U.S. should criminalize that? Uh, do you think we should tolerate a society where people think they can play only if they can pay? Um, I'm just kind of curious what you're... Are. Uh, you know, I mean, these these are, you know, the, the ultimate sort of uh, um, <laughs> reconstruction of the American uh, political system is above my pay grade. Uh, I mean, you know, th this is this is the system we have. Uh, this is the system that, uh, you know, uh, that is, was an operation at the time. Would it be better if governors weren't allowed to take any gifts? Yeah. Would it be smarter if they didn't take any gifts? Yeah. Uh, you know, would the public uh, be, you know, be more inclined to trust them if they didn't? Of course. Uh, uh, you know, but that's not the that's not the way the system worked in Virginia or anywhere else in the country. Uh, and, you know, the bottom line from my perspective is that if you're going to criminalize some behavior, uh, people people that might get caught up in that have an absolute right to know where the line is. Uh, you know, the government does not want to tell you where the line is because they're afraid that people will walk right up to it and get chalk on their toes. That's why the SEC, for example, and the government has never wanted to define insider trading uh, in a way that is clear cut uh, because there's sort of interim effect uh, by having vague laws and vague statutes, uh, the government thinks serves their purposes better. Trust uh, us, saying trust us. That's what they say. I got another question for you. Here we go. Um, so I think people generally don't like the idea of public officials getting gifts, even if it's not illegal. But it seems like you may have had to clean that up um, for the purposes of the case. Did you feel like you had to cure against that at all? I, I'm sorry. I, I'm sorry. I just need to hear it louder. Come up here and shout it out. Hold on, here we go. Um, it seems like generally people don't like the idea of public officials getting gifts, even if, if it's not illegal. Did you? But it seems like you had to play that up for the case. Did you feel like you had to cure against that at all? And if so, how did you do that? Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, the, the, the public, no, I knew the public wasn't going to like it. I mean, that's why all the press was negative uh, leading up to and throughout the course of the trial. I knew, I knew that it was going to be offensive uh, to people uh, that he had that he had taken, you know, I mean, the hundred seventy thousand, a hundred of it roughly, was a loan that was repaid uh, to to Williams, and there were some other gifts, uh, etc., to to uh, the governor, his wife, and his family members. Uh, I knew they I knew they weren't going to like it, 
but the, you know, that wasn't the issue in the case. Uh, I mean, if, if the issue was, did he get gifts and loans? Yeah, you know, we got no defense for that. Uh, but that, you know, the law doesn't criminalize, uh, you know, getting that quid. Uh, and that's why, you know, that's why uh, Bill Burke, uh, counsel for Mrs. McDonald, asked the case agent after the quid parade at the end of the government's case, when they bring in uh, every tangible item uh, that was a gift uh, to the governor's family members. And, you know, so Bill Burke gets up and he says, OK, you got a whole list of quid. You know, where's your list of the quo? Where are the things that Johnny's got? And the agent says, well, we don't have, we don't, we don't have a, a demonstrative for that. Oh, that's good. Oh, that's good. I love it. All right, we have time for two more questions. Um, so my question is like, what was your calculus going into deciding whether or not to try and sever um, Mr. McDonald's case from his wife's? Because it seems like she had some particularly bad facts um, especially the, the sales of the stocks and the timing with the filings that they were supposed to do, the financial disclosures. Um, yeah, I'll tell you, I'll tell you the about the severance. Good question. Uh, we filed a motion for severance of defendants. Uh, in support of that motion, Bill Burke, who was Maureen McDonald's lead counsel, uh, authored an affidavit uh, that was 15 pages long, uh, outlining what his client would testify to if she were called as a defense witness for her husband. And the exhibit was replete with examples of, I didn't tell my husband this, I hid that from my husband, uh, he wasn't aware of this, he wasn't aware of that, on and on and on and on, uh, et cetera. Uh, and telling why she held stuff back from him, et cetera. Uh, the judge would not, uh, we asked the judge to read the affidavit on an ex parte basis and there's case law supporting this proposition, uh, and then to give us a separate trial. He refused to read the affidavit and denied our severance motion. But Mrs. McDonald, had she been given a separate trial, she didn't want to testify in her own criminal trial, but was perfectly willing to testify in his criminal trial, whether hers was before his or after his, uh, but the judge basically refused to read the affidavit because we wouldn't simultaneously give it months before the trial to the prosecution because it would have been a roadmap to our cross-examination of a lot of the government's witnesses. So we had to make a strategic decision not to give it to the government, uh, the ramifications of it. Okay, we've got one last, one last question for you, Hank. Hi, um, so this actually kind of works out perfect because it's sort of chronological to what's going on. But once you realized that it was going to, you know, go together in the same trial, the two defendants, how much collaboration went behind the theory that was put together for Bob as like, you know, being separated from his wife at the time? And then on top of that, did you ever have any ideas for theories that were more collaborative, kind of like including the facts from her side? Well, yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, there was, there was, Definitely a coordinated plan uh, between the parties here, between our, our lawyers and Mrs. McDonald's lawyers. Uh, and I mean, the press kept reporting it constantly as so we're throwing her under the bus and even her own lawyers are throwing her under the bus, et cetera. One blogger who seemed to understand what the hell was really going on in the courtroom said, it appears to me that what they're really doing is driving the bus together. Uh, and we were, uh, I mean, you know, we, we couldn't, get around the things that she had done 
uh, that were unseemly and that we didn't know about it in real time, basically. Uh, you know, we couldn't, we couldn't get around uh, those facts. We had to deal with them. Uh, and basically, you know, as I said that at the beginning of this, uh, the way we chose to deal with them was let, let's tell the truth about the marriage. Uh, the government's basic theory was these people conspired, and the proof of that is that they were husband and wife. And our, our facts were, yeah, they're husband and wife, but it's a totally dysfunctional marriage and relationship, and they're not really sharing anything with each other. And if Bob know, knew about some of the things that Maureen was doing with Johnny Williams, he'd have been apoplectic, uh, but he didn't know. And he was too busy and too preoccupied with affairs of state uh, to deal with it. And he didn't have the bandwidth uh, to argue with his wife, you know, at midnight uh, every night when he was doing, you know, 16 hour days uh, being the governor. Uh, so anyway, uh, you know, our, our, you know, we tried to coordinate these things as best we could. Um, and, you know, and, and it, it, wasn't, it wasn't my plan, but her own lawyer, Maureen's own lawyer, basically argued that she had an infatuation uh, you know, with Johnny Williams and was, uh, uh, you know, had a platonic relationship with Johnny Williams. Uh, that was not my argument, but that, that, was, that was her own lawyer's argument, but that was not something that was coordinated with us. Uh, you know, that's, that's just the way it played out. There was a lot of coordination uh, and trying not to hurt each other, uh, for sure. Uh, but, you know, it, I mean, it, uh, you know, Bob and his, and his, and his wife had different counsel and, you know, they sometimes went off in different directions, uh, planned or unplanned, uh, during the course of the trial. But this is always a problem when you have co-defendants, always. And, you know, you had a much better chance if we could have gotten a separate trial, uh, and we didn't have her there in the trial, basically. And if she could have been a witness for us, uh, it would have been exceptionally helpful. But she was not willing ever to take the stand in her own defense. So, Hank, I just wanted to thank you. This was awesome. It was so nice to speak to a real criminal defense lawyer who fought, went all the way to the Supreme Court and won. It's such a great story. And so I just wanted to thank you and give... Uh, and, and really appreciate the time and, and everything that you put into this. Uh, it was it was wonderful. Uh, my pleasure, David. I enjoyed it very much, and uh, and I hope you all uh, uh, enjoyed it as well. And I'm sure you're going to have a lot of fun in David's class for the rest of the year. Really, really interesting to hear about the representation of a sitting governor who was considered for a vice presidential slot and who had everything going with him and then had to deal with a snitch named Johnny Williams discussing what ended up not even being a crime and his whole career was derailed. It's truly unbelievable how our United States government sometimes overreaches, uh, especially in the federal system with white collar cases. This was a fun bonus episode. Season two is coming up in a couple of weeks. And to kick off season two, we have Alan Dershowitz, Professor Dershowitz from Harvard Law School fame. And we'll be talking about the O.J. Simpson trial. I'm very excited to speak with Professor Dershowitz. I'll see you all in a couple of weeks. Enjoy the holidays. Thanks. Thanks.